All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with Calvin. Hey, thanks for having me. And we are continuing our uh, this part two of our Pan's Labyrinth kind of review and analysis and uh, just kind of discussion on on this uh, Guillermo del Toro film. Yeah, and so we spent a lot of time mentioning in the, fir- in the first part about how uh, we had problems with this 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 movie and uh, ways that we think they could be better. But what we're going to start with this section two is uh, what this film does give us in terms of symbols and themes and our main interpretation of uh, uh, what actually is there. So the main one here, I would say, is that the, uh, of uh, the idea of fairy tales as escapism, especially like concerning Ophelia. So Ophelia obviously loves books and fairy tales and the parallel aspects of the fairy tale elements to the real events allow us to read this film as a story of a child approaching the harsh reality of her life by putting herself into a fairy tale world. And so these are the the ways that you can look at all of the, the fairy tale, mystical, magical elements um, and why we read it that way. So first of all, you do have the uh, that little story at the beginning that she's telling to her brother. This r- might be the most weird scene I've ever seen. Yeah. But it's you, also a wonderful transition. Like, Yeah. Well, and not only that, it was something completely different. Right. When he first read it, it was actually, uh, uh, it was supposed to be a uh, parable about uh, a blue rose and a dragon guarding it. And apparently it, it was a big, big deal thematically for the story, but Del Toro cut it because it was so it was going to be so expensive. Right. So, and I guess more screen time. I don't know. I mean, it's already a two hour film. I don't think that screen time should be a concern here. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about the Rose on the mountain. Ophelia yeah. Kind of telling the story to her unborn brother. Yeah. And so like the main takeaway is, that, um, you know, that the Rose, uh, is at the top of the mountain, but it's covered in thorns and you, you men would prick themselves. So men talked of their, their pain and their fear of dying, which were the thorns, but never the promise of eternal life. And so the rose wilted, which just doesn't mean anything here. Um, you know, which is unfortunate. Like, it's kind of like, it feels like it could be something, but it's not connected to anything other than maybe at the end with like the, uh, like sacrifice for goodness or justice. But that's a really loose interpretation. I, I like to think the, the baby fetus is just the big inspiration for the BBs in Death Stranding. <laughs> That's just all I ever thought of when I watched it after playing that game and then seeing that scene. I was like, oh, I get it now. That's so funny. That's what it looks like. That that shot is also important, too, because um, the toad then parallels, uh, the toad in, under the tree parallels Carmen's troubled pe- pregnancy. So you do have that shot of the fetus, right? So when Ophelia is telling the, the, the baby the story, um, get the shot of the fetus in the womb. We travel through the, the birth canal the same way Ophelia does. So you the fetus's position in frame mirrors the shape of the toad's tunnel and his position in it as well. So Del Toro is creating a visual analogy consciously for those those paying attention, but subconsciously for those who don't notice it. And it doesn't really matter if you do or don't don't notice it because it's working on the same level either way. It's creating a visual uh, connection between these two elements. And the toad then vomiting that ball is symbol like symbolizes the the actual birth of the baby. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what is the key now? Like, I guess, like, that's how we knew it was going to be a baby boy is because it had a key and that's a penis for Freudian terms. I don't know. Who I, knows? I, I had maybe a take that uh, the toad in the tree was symbolizing someone who has a lot of greed and is, like, hoarding wealth at the detriment to everyone around it. So, it's like, the toad is, you know, eating all these bugs. And I, I don't really know how that works, why it... I don't understand how it's killing the tree, but it is. Yeah, right. You'd think that, like, eating the bugs would, like... I mean, most of the time, like, a tree doesn't care about bugs unless it's, like, beetle kills yeah. or something like that. So that would actually be helpful. We're just told that the toad is killing the tree. And so I guess that idea of, you know, someone hoarding wealth or whatever uh, to the detriment of the tree or whatever, it, it, it there was, like, that kind of connection you could make, too. I don't know what you thought of that or if you took that away or if it's just the pregnancy. I think it's just the pregnancy because then you do have the pale man and the pale man can be seen more as Vidal in his storehouse because A, we get there um, through a, a portal and we're getting a key from it. So again, it's connection of keys to the storehouse, keys from the pale man. We're just like Mercedes stealing the, the other copy of the key from Vidal so that the rebels can get into the storehouse. You have a, the pale man. Um, it's really this the idea of stealing from a tyrant because his things wouldn't be missed because he just has 
a, a mass of wealth. And so that's what I think that what's going on there. So I don't, I don't remember if Ophelia had seen the storehouse, but I think because Mercedes had, and we consider those characters kind of connected by spirit yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than actual and like analogy. Um, that's the way you can look at it. But Del Toro also uh, calls this an allegory for the Catholic church, like especially um, at the time, because this is set in 1944, uh, the, the Spanish church like didn't care about the rebels. Like that one, the priest at the dinner table even says, God's already saved their souls. He doesn't care about their bodies. They can die for all I care. Um, Which is such a brutal thing for man of God to say. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But he also see like, that's also why the pale man eats children is because uh, it's a, it's a, crit- a criticism of the Catholic Catholic church, um, you know, literally preying upon children. Yeah. No, I, I definitely, it, it's so like, it's also like visually horrifying. Cause there's like all the pile of like children's shoes set off to the side of the table. It's, it's it, the whole scene is gross. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether it's, literally what you're saying or metaphorically what it means it's it's uh, that's a tough one to get through um i also i if you want to take it as like you know a criticism of the catholic church i like to think of the table as uh the catholic church is incredibly wealthy and they have this great bounty and but i like to think of it as the idea of like only the church leadership has access to this bounty and just the regular people like ophelia they're not allowed to touch the table they can't like you know they can't eat from it they can't have that wealth either so i i like that idea too is this the the, the, the mass wealth that the Catholic Church has, but it's also like, oh, but this isn't for the regular people. It's for us. Yeah, and there's also the idea of like, um, you know, this doesn't matter thematically, but why did Ophelia eat from the table? I mean, it was because she ruined her dress the night before and got sent to bed without eating. Yeah, right. So... Dude, she also picks the biggest grapes I've ever seen in my life. They yeah. amazing. <laughs> they look more like plums. They're huge. Yeah. And like... It's weird that she chose those out of everything else on the table. I thought there were things that were like a lot more, I don't know, tasty. But yeah, I'm but not really a grape guy. No, but they, oh, but but again, that just that that whole scene and uh, we talked about the the bites that the uh, the pale man's taking out of the fairies. I think one thing that's so interesting about that is they do they not all sound like a boo from that's Aladdin? literally. Oh, you know what? We forgot to mention that the fairies like are actually like he. Uh, Del Toro wanted to think of them as like dirty little monkeys. Oh, well, he nailed it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's like, oh, you can totally hear it in the sound design. Oh, they sound exactly like the squeaky sounds that Abu makes. I, I kept hearing Aladdin in my head. Yeah. Like, wah, 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 wah. yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, that that scene specifically, you can really hear the sound design. There are some other parts that you can uh, hear them, but that one especially because they're all exclaiming. So there, you know, that's kind of what we think of as the the pale man, the analogy there. And then you also have the mandrake. So the two drops of blood that she has to put into the bowl of milk with the mandrake mirrors the uh, the two drops of medicine from the doctor uh, at the beginning for Carmen and her um, and her uh, pregnancy to help her with that. Right. And so it's interesting comparing the idea of magic and medicine here because the authority of who suggested it holds different meaning for Carmen and Ophelia, equal weight of belief, but in perfect opposition as to the true remedy. So it's really like a childlike approach to like, well, this is magical and there's magic is stronger than anything in the world. Um, so I think, so again, like the two drops there are very important. And then we have the fawn. And so this is really important. Like we've mentioned in part one, that this is not Pan. Uh, the movie title was changed from El Labyrinth del Fano to some version of Pan's Labyrinth, you know, for to draw in more of the Western audience. Um, unfortunately, that also changes our perception of him because Pan is a sexually voracious trickster god. So anybody that's aware of Pan coming to this film would look at him like that. And it's very odd then that he's nice at first kind of i mean you know if we think of him as a trickster you know those types of things but um it's interesting that you bring that up because i think my freshman year i took a mythology class mm -hmm. and we watched this as like one of the last classes and i think it's just because the teacher liked us this movie (sighs) but he wanted us to use like think of this as like how does this operate as a myth and that was one of the things he brought up he was like you know think about the archetypes that these different characters have and kind of the one that most people came up with was the fawn as a trickster Instead of like kind of that mentor father figure, which because I, I think that kind of lends to kind of how odd this character is used in the movie because he feels trustworthy. He feels like he's doing the right thing. But then he also it seems to have like a nefarious or, or a purpose trying to meet his own means. And so I do like him as the trickster 
but then it also it doesn't play out in the end that way. So yeah, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it absolutely doesn't work. But yeah, Del Toro has even stated in the interviews that it's a good thing that uh, Ophelia didn't actually meet the real Pam because she would have been in a world of trouble. Right. But I think I I think the the Fawn represents you know Earth nature. He's a father figure that wants to help her and take her away to someplace beautiful, and so his actions are based on the information given to her. This is why I think that the, again this is um. Uh, why this isn't real is because um, he becomes a much different character when Ophelia is told that Fonz shouldn't be trusted. Suddenly he's creepy, impatient, and prone to anger, similar to Vidal. And so I think of him as uh, an animus projection So um, of her own subconscious. So a collection of all the male traits she's observed in her life, the kind-heartedness of her dead father and the self-serving anger of her new stepfather. That's why that would explain why he seems like such a weird character in his actions. Um, and it helps if he is not actually real and is just a character that she has made up in her mind. I like that take a lot. The idea that he, he could represent the two kind of father figures that she has now or has had and has currently. I like that idea a lot. That makes his character make more sense because he's so confusing. Super interesting, but very confusing in how he's used in this story. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think that that is really a warranted take um, because there, there are too many things uh, in a narrative sense that he that don't work here. But I, the other part of like what this film is, is I think that's the heart of it is like Fairy tales is escapism, but then you have this rebel subplot that makes everything uh, a fairy tale of disobedience. So it's uh, Ophelia disobeying, um, you know, her mother getting her dress dirty, and then you have her disobeying the fawn, like because she didn't immediately complete the second trial, so he's impatient with her. She ate the grapes from the table, um, and uh, she didn't give him her brother at the end, and that's compared and contrasted to um, the rebels. Um, you know, fighting against fascism, uh, the doctor killing the captive uh, by injecting so he doesn't give up any more information. And then Mercedes, like, you know, cutting Vidal's mouth. I have such an interesting uh, bit of a behind-the-scenes thing on that scene. Uh, you know, he gets his mouth cut open. Uh -huh. uh, Mercedes cuts his mouth, and then in a later scene, he's suturing it, it shut. Uh -huh. So that's actually a, a practical effect. I mean, a, like a, a little... Uh, piece of makeup they put on over his over his cheek and then they painted his skin underneath it blue that way in post they knew what to paint out Ooh. and then he actually takes a real suture and sews the prosthetic shut wow. yeah like the uh, uh sergey lopez like that's not a that's not like a fake needle or anything like that but and there's some like cleaning up on the edges with cgi and everything but there is a prosthetic on his face that he's sewing shut there i think it's just an amazing bit of a uh, a practical work and then like to have an actor who's willing to like go through and like pull that off. I think it looks awesome. Yeah. I love that. Like there's so many things that have, uh, that Del Toro like starts with that as being practical and then makes CG. Right. Um, I think it lends a, a huge amount of realism to his uh, magical nature, the magical nature of his films. This movie is sneaky in how good the effects are. Mm. Uh, I don't think you would look at this and be like, wow, like what a, what a triumph of, of visual effects or what a, what a triumph of uh, practical effects. This movie is rife with that kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's really sneaky in that way mm. because it's not like your big box office blow them up CGI everywhere kind of movie, but it's, it's really neat in that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. But so we've established this idea of fairy tales as escapism and this idea as a fairy tale of disobedience. This is where we really get to the problem of this film. It is two competing storylines that are only loosely tied together thematically, but they're wildly different in tone and pacing and emotion. This should be a story about Ophelia, and it's set up to be that way, but we also have uh, all of the rebels, and that's given so much screen time and so many characters that we have to consider it on the same level as Ophelia's story, but there's enough screen time to actually flesh out the characters or care about them. That is at the top of my list of problems with this. I think there's so much time spent on Vidal in this subplot, or it, I, I hesitate to even call it a subplot. They're both like A plots. That's how the movie treats it. They're both like supposed to be narratives that we care about. Mm -hmm. But oh my God, every time we go away from Ophelia and like the fawn and that story, I it is insanely boring to me. It's, it doesn't capture you the same way like this weird fairy tale captures you. It's like, but you can't, you can't have a, 
two stories competing with each other. One is infinitely more interesting, and then you're drugged down by one that is like, okay, now we have to get through these couple scenes so I can get back to the good stuff, you know? Right, and so you have the flatness of all of the characters. All of the characters are flat except for maybe the fawn. But you have all of these questions in the first in in her storyline uh, or Ophelia's uh, storyline, like what is magic? Like what's real? What does he really want? Is this is it? What is going to happen? And then you have no questions about that for plot B um, because you, they're this guy's evil. These guys are good and they're fighting the good fight. Yeah. There, there's no, that's why that needs to exist is a, is a small, like a smaller B plot because there, there is no, there is no nuance to that story. Like we know who Vidal is. It's set up in the first scene and then it doesn't matter really what the rebels causes. If you're just against the most evil guy ever, like you're the good guy now. And so there is no, there's, there's nothing to be gained except for that to be just a backdrop to your fairy tale, which is in my, my like, I think the most simple take of this movie is that this is just supposed to be Ophelia escaping from a, a bad situation through fairy tales. That's right. what I think this movie just, it's what it really should be. It's what it really just is. But it is trying to mix the two storylines too much. Mm-hmm. And they just don't mesh in that way. Yeah. And so then you have the Vidal set up as the antagonist for both Ophelia and for the rebels. So he's the pivot point to connect uh, um, these two storylines. And that makes him the central character, which um, uh, which is, you know, it, it takes it takes away from everything that makes Pan's Labyrinth special. So that's 30 minutes at least of screen time that we could that uh that's actively sucking the life out of the magic of this movie oh yeah i i you could not have said that better uh saying that vidal is the pivot point because he is he's the bad guy for ophelia and he's the bad guy for mercedes which to me that's the that's really the two storylines that are going on you're following mercedes and the rebels and you're following ophelia and her fairy tale and the fact that vidal is the bad guy for both of them it makes him yeah like you said the central character for the movie yeah which is terrible exactly and so on the other on the other hand of that you have the fawn and the fawn is so frustrating because we've mentioned it before like his narrative role is at odds with his thematic role if we consider this a film to be a, a fairy tale of disobedience if we consider his narrative role to be the archetypal old man the guide to the underworld friend of moana then why does he have these mood swings why is he helpful then menacing then helpful then ask for the blood from a baby um, right. Yeah. Like the whole thematically, the whole movie is about questioning authority or authoritarians. Uh, the doctor's defiance by killing the prisoner. Like that's because some men cannot blindly follow orders uh, is the clearest example of all of these characters righteously disobeying. I love that line. The, that that whole scene with the doctor is wonderful. Like, yeah. He's like, he's like men. Like, he's like, you're the only kind of man who's like that. Like, yeah. Which is, and it's just like a huge slap in the face. Yeah. And then just walking out like, I know knowing he, he's going to die. Yeah. That's a wonderful, like a uh, really uh, like dying for a just cause scene, you know? Yeah, exactly. But fairy tales are generally not about uh, disobedience. Uh, her disobedience, or I mean, for, fairy tales are generally about obedience. Like that's the whole point. Like we mentioned before in Ic- uh, the story of Icarus, don't fly too high so the sun doesn't melt your um, wings, the wax on your wings. Don't fly too low, or the or the waves will tell or will take you. Um, it's all about like it's codifying the, the middle ground um, so that you're not deviant and you fit into society. Um, so her disobedience by eating from the pale man's table is directly opposed to the, to this theme of, uh, of disobedience, because even if the pale man is Vidal and it's a metaphor for raiding the storehouse, this is a completely different st- situation where the consequences of her disobedience would hurt her and her fairy friends. You can say that the, the rebels had similar risks in raiding the storehouse, but they also risk dying in the woods from exposure so this wasn't a needless risk on their part in a fairy tale sense the gruesomeness of the fairy of the fairies being eaten says that she made the wrong choice it's akin to uh oh, i'm sorry i guess i hadn't mentioned icarus before but it's akin to the hubris of icarus uh flying too high because he thought the rules didn't apply to him right um i so. like that idea because because you can't just have Ophelia be like an allegory for everything that's going on with the rebel cause because it just doesn't fit together with the story. So she no. can't she can't represent the rebels inside the pale man's dining room. She can't. It, it just doesn't fit all together in that way. You know what I mean? I think it could be. I think that's what he was trying to go for. But like her disobedience here is about selfishness, 
not because yeah. it's it's just not because she's uh not blindly following or- orders like she's being childlike yeah which is uh, yeah it, it, it which narratively doesn't fit at all with the the idea of the rebels raiding the storehouse like, yeah in an altruistic way she didn't take grapes off the table to be altruistic you know yeah exactly so and then so this what this was what this ultimately means is that uh the film tries to make the fawn work the same way that Vidal does with the rebels. He's an authority figure that might not be trustworthy, should be questioned, but the fawn is very helpful and seemingly cares uh, with nuance that Vidal does not possess in any way, shape, or form. It's obvious that Vidal should be distrusted because he's evil. The fawn's ambiguity for motivation, though, prevents this comparison and breaks us into two separate movies thematically, accentuating the fact that the two plot lines work against each other. That definitely lines up with another one of my problems. I think if you want to have those two stories, you need to have the Fawn and Vidal parallel each other like in a much more obvious way. Mm. Because I, I think there are some elements built into that. Like if you want to look at Ophelia and Mercedes as kind of essentially being the same sort of character, Mercedes is forced to carry out tasks like cooking the rabbit or keeping the storehouse locked, or she carries out tasks out throughout the house for Vidal, even though she is working against him. She's doing it kind of against her will. She doesn't want to do it. Then you need to set up the fawn in the same way, and you need to have Ophelia carrying out tasks for the fawn, even though she doesn't really want to. And then you can have those that would parallel Vidal and the fawn in a much more clear way, and then you would have the clear mirroring of Mercedes and Ophelia, which then I think lines up the two narratives in a much more cohesive way yeah exactly like the there there are a couple ways that this movie would be made better and one of them is telling the two stories that of ophelia and that of mercedes but you have to make those parallels clear so one believes in magic as a form of escape and then and that life would be better if magic existed she can escape into an imagine alice in wonderland type experience and then the other stop believing in magic but still believes in goodness and doing the right thing in the the face of oppressive evil in this case a repressive government so she believes that she can escape her life of subjection if she creates the country she wants to live in so it's about creating words worlds about telling the story like then the movie becomes the power of stories, the stories that we tell our children and the stories we tell ourselves. So the childlike belief has place in the, in the adult world. Like these stories are important because we raise our children to be empathetic individuals that create better uh, futures. So in a really elegant way of tying these things together would be that the idea of bugs and fairies, like um, the bug turns into a fairy when Ophelia shows, her, shows it a picture of the book. And uh, right. you have a bug changing into a fairy. I like. So, I wonder because I think there's two different takes you can have on that. Do you think that the stick bug saw the depiction of a fairy and turned into it because it because it saw it and it thought that would be something that Ophelia would connect with or resonate with better? Or do you think that it's it is actually a fairy and it was like, oh, she understands who we are. I can show her my fairy form. I think it works in both of those ways. I think it's interesting. I mean, if you think of the everything as being real, I think that's that's the case. But I don't think it's everything that's being real. I think she saw bugs like, oh, what if that's a fairy? Okay. Yeah. So, but so that's so that's the way it works. Like, so then you could have Mercedes like communing with bugs um, as a way of like, uh, like she doesn't believe in fairies anymore, but she like, they still carry some magical property, like the idealism of life and value in all creatures. So that's a good way of paralleling uh, small changes to this film that would make it infinitely better. You don't really need to get rid of this plot. Then you just need to make, um, you need to make the themes obvious that they are the same. Because I, I think on a on just a first glance, it is hard to be like, how is uh, Rebels Against an Evil Captain the same as Ophelia carrying out tasks for a fawn? It's, it's really hard to just be like, oh, those stories are the same. You know, you, like you said, I don't think you need to be uh, ambiguous in how you work those two stories to be similar. I think it, it would help... And I don't think it means that the audience is dumb because we have talked about movies like before where everything is so spelled out and you need to make it obvious. Otherwise, people won't get it. But this is the kind of movie where the two narratives are so different, like just the the inherent plot of the two that I think you do need to you need to establish a couple points in there to be like, OK, I get the parallels they're making here. Yeah, exactly. And so I start with that one as as the mo- one of the most obvious ways to make this movie better because you really don't need to change a whole lot. 
But I don't think, I think an infinitely, again, a much, much better movie is making everything about Ophelia. Um, tell everything from her perspective while giving glimpses of some of the political tension, but make the whole point of the movie her conflict with her stepfather and her use of fairy tales as a way of dealing with that. Because that's the magic. Like when what, I think this is really the heart of Pan's Labyrinth, the wonder of a ma- of this magical world, the questions about whether any of it's real. Give the movie its character, its aesthetic, and all of its emotion. And so, so the way you would do that then is you have to make like you were saying, you have to make Vidal like the fawn, like make the comparisons. They have to both be authoritarians uh, that she doesn't want to listen to. She can then create her own fairy tale uh, about a fawn that represents Vidal and how she overcomes this creature with her wits and magical friends. Like it, it doesn't need to be real. It can just be like she's writing her own story and how yeah. it would play out in an imagined world versus how she wishes it played out in the real world. Or set the phone up like a caring father figure that ultimately betrays her as a political allegory of like the slow c- creep of a fascist regime. Then you can work in your your more uh, your your political uh, criticisms as well. If, if as long as you keep everything tied loosely in the background, right? Everything. Everything about these stories working together is kind of hinges on making a parallel between the fawn and Vidal. Cause yeah, I think, you're absolutely right. Because I think you could also, we talked about, it would make more sense if Vidal had given her the dress. Yeah, and yeah. Because then maybe that would, that would lead you to believe like, oh, okay, maybe he is caring kind of the same way that the fawn appears to be caring and he's trying to help her. And if Vidal was doing small things throughout the movie to kind of win Ophelia over, but then he also shows his like true nature and she sees that then and in the same way you could have the fawn paralleling that too, where he's helping Ophelia along, but then he's also mad that she didn't carry out the second task immediately. And he kind of blows up on her and tells her that she'll never return to the underworld. So I think the, the whole story works only if those two guys are parallel to each other. And it doesn't matter if you want to pick it one way or the other, whether it's Vidal's really evil and you make the fawn like overly uh, evil, or if you try to blend the two characters. It just it all only works if they are treated the same, and they're not at yeah. all because the fawn is kind of confusing and kind of seems to move in between uh, the light and the dark. But Vidal is just always evil, and we always know that, and so that's why this doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. So you can like, especially like if. If uh, the fawn had always been really, really helpful up into the point where she, or he asked for the the blood from her baby brother, like someone of lesser character, um, who's you know, if you have someone that's always told you the truth, has always been helpful and trustworthy, and someone tells you, oh, I just need the a couple drops of blood from uh, um, from your baby brother. Someone of lesser character would be like, oh, okay, that's fine. That seems you. I have no reason to distrust you. Right. Um, but someone of a strong character then could resist that because like, no, I don't want to hurt anyone. But it doesn't mean anything here because we already don't really trust the fawn because he seems like a very self-serving character who's prone to anger and violence. So it doesn't even matter that. And also, the, the I mean, think about like the way the movie actually treats it. It's like, give me your baby brother. And she's like, uh, no. And then Vidal shows up and like, give me the, bro- the baby. And she's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't, they're not even connected there. So it's not even treating them the same. I guess maybe you could look at it as like, no matter what, like that uh, animus projection was going to get what it wanted. Like it was going to get the baby no matter what. Yeah. I could maybe look at it that that. I'm reaching there. (sighs) Yeah. You should be proud. I I used animus projection. And and I'm I'm learning. And yeah, you're making a very good point in my mind. So one of the things about this movie is that Guillermo del Toro has said that all of the magic is real. All this stuff is happening. And that's a little uh, bone of contention between us. So I think it is real. I don't think it is. Um, Almost everything can be explained away um, as being in her head. The fawn fawn is literally invisible in the final scene. So the only thing that can't be explained is how she got to the room with Vidal and her baby brother. Um, The only way that makes it would work is if the chalk actually does open portals through doors. Um, But everything else can just literally be inside of her head. So I have a, I have a quick take on why I think the, why the fawn isn't seen at the end. So Ophelia has dropped that uh, that medication in his glass, and he's kind of woozy and out of it. Mm-hmm. I think that she's he's just been dosed, and he just can't see the fawn. 
Because there's like a little tricks of the camera that have been done earlier where he's kind of like wobbling and there's a little bit of distortion in the frame. So I think it's it's implied that he's clearly impaired. And I just think he walks up and he just doesn't see the fawn. Yeah. And, and then the fawn is like disappeared. Or and, and it's not even out of the realm of possibility that the fawn is just magical himself and he could he could make himself unseeable to anyone but Ophelia. And I don't I, I don't necessarily find a problem with any of those interpretations. The the problem I have then is that you cannot have that shot in the film. Because if you have that shot, that reinforces the idea that is not real. That someone, if you cannot see something that someone else does, then that's only happening from their perspective. I agree with you. I, that's kind of, that's for me explaining why the magic is real. That's the toughest scene to overcome because it, Mm. it is so like clear that like she is standing by herself talking to what seems like nobody. And it's so set up in a way that would make it look like a child just talking to an imaginary friend. Like that's how that's how it's set up to look. So it's hard to explain that away. But my only thought is that he's, he's high and he doesn't see the fawn. I, I wonder if there's a, maybe a neat trick they could do, or maybe there's a like camouflage. Yeah. Like, like an, like a predator. Yeah. Like, like, a, like from uh, like the, the oh, yeah, quite like, like that. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of <laughs> shimmering. But I mean, like maybe, maybe there's like a, maybe he thinks he sees the fawn or, or maybe it's like a weird looking tree branch, like, cause the, the fawn is built to look like a tree. So maybe there's yeah. like some, uh, a, a small tree in there and he kind of wipes his eyes and then it's gone. And by that point, the fawn is like already kind of like a vanished from the scene. So I think, but, but then I also think that it's interesting to have the idea of, uh, looking at it and being like, what's real and what's not. So regardless of what Guillermo del Toro says, I also think there's really interesting takes on why it's all not real. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then too, like if it would, another fun thing could have been like, you could have had black Philip, uh, the goat from the witch, just like, that's what Ophelia is talking to. Oh God, man, that would really tie together like two, two really interesting movies. Yeah. Great cinematic universe in the making. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the examples that Del Toro has actually said in an interview, uh, as being real is a, the Ophelia escaping her bedroom to get to her brother because she has a guard stationed, uh, in front of her door. And Vidal even says, if anyone tries to get into the room, shoot her first. So literally like that's his only, like he's just paying attention God, to her. This dude sucks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like that's awful. Especially like, yeah. It's speaking of awful. Like if you have a choice to save her, or the baby, save the baby. Oh my God. I had forgotten about that line. Is that crazy? He's terrible. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, I think I'd mentioned in part one that I, I think he, he really resents Carmen for yeah. getting sick. Yeah. And, and now it, he's just kind of biding his time until she dies and he never really wanted Ophelia and all this. That's what I'm saying is there, there's so many character traits that, that he has that they could have used to build parallels between him and uh, the fawn and they choose not to. They just choose to make him outright bad guy, mm-hmm. which is fine if you want to have a terrible villain for the rebels to unite against not very cool and nuanced if you want to tell a cool fairy tale story you know absolutely especially when one has nuance um and then the other thing the other two things he has are the labyrinth uh parting ways to allow her into the center which i mean i think could just be something that happens in her mind like she sees a way through you know like it's like oh it's like everything parted um to allow me to the center of the uh labyrinth and he's drunk and he misses it like it could just be like yeah. a little opening. Like that's another thing that it's just like, it's all from her perspective. He doesn't see it. So it doesn't necessarily need to be magical. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I can't take credit for this. This is, this is Hannah's take. She was like, I got real shining vibes from that scene. Like mm. uh, her being chased through the labyrinth, which I totally agree. And, and I, that, that would make sense. I know Guillermo del Toro is described as a cinephile. So I don't doubt that he took a, uh, a little license or inspiration from Kubrick and, and, and threw that kind of in there. I, I, it's got similarities to it. I like that. I like that take on it. I was, I told Hannah, I was like, Oh, I'm going to steal that. But, right. But I'll give her credit on that one. Yeah. Um, and then the last example he gives is really confusing to me because you remember where she leaves her dress on that branch when she goes into the, the uh, toad layer, right? It shows the bug and then it's like a little white flower. And she left in the story says like she left her mark uh, for those paying attention. That's what he's talking about. That's the only thing in the film that is that has her mark of where of, of if, if people know where to look is that flower. Which doesn't mean anything happened. 
It just means that there's a flower there. Like all of her entire trip to the tree could have been a story and she just rolled around in the mud somewhere. None of it has to be real still. I guess I never, I never made that connection. The connection I always made was to the story of the rose on the mountain. And so it, it talks about the end of that. It's like, you know, everyone was too afraid to get up there and uh, bequeath. It never got to be, bequeath its gift of beauty. And so I thought that that flower on the tree was just supposed to symbolize that she was the flower at the top of the mountain. And she has this story to be told, but no one ever quite made it up to her. Oh, my God. I bet, I bet that is. But there's no reason like, to justify that connection in terms of theme. I suppose you're right. I, again, I, I feel like for some of the stuff I feel like I'm reaching, but I think this movie is so interesting in that way. It's like you can throw theories out like that because I, I like that idea a lot. And granted, it's my idea, so of course I like it. But uh, that's, that's the connection I always made is that that flower is just paralleled to the flower on the mountain. Interesting. I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but then the other, th- the possible real things is like, you know, I mean, still, if the fawn isn't real, then she's just talking to herself. But like the moon birthmark on her left shoulder. Um, another thing I think is really interesting is some people have given speculative, um, like what the real relationship of the fawn is with her. Maybe like he is her real father, Moana's real father or a friend or a lover. And they use this obelisk um, when he's explaining, that's me, that's you. And, and then she asks, who's the child? It's very obviously the uh, <laughs> foreshadowing of the ending. Right. It's them at the end with her baby brother because she asks, who's the baby? And he just moves on. But some people have speculated that like there's some uh, uh, like love relationship between them. Um, especially considering about what the original move, the movie originally was a, a story where a family moved into this house. They found a staircase behind a bookcase. The woman falls in love with a fawn and the fawn convinces her to s- sacrifice their child. Sounds Seriously. like a great movie. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was much darker than this. <laughs> and, but like that has, I don't think that has, maybe that has like some connection to that and it's just in spirit, but I really think it's just foreshadowing there. And it's interesting. Like if everything is a projection of her mind and her story, why would she put that in if she literally dies at the end, you know, but she doesn't know that yet. I, I always saw that, that carving as, I think that plays into kind of the misdirect and confusion that the fawn has as a character. Cause I saw that as like, he's trying to achieve some nefarious purpose where he's the one with the children. And mm. he's, he's saying that Ophelia is carrying out these tasks for the King and, and for her to get back to the, the underworld. And that's why he brushes over the obelisk really quickly because he's like, oh, no, 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 don't pay attention to that. That's secretly, I'm secretly getting you to do my thing where I get to have you guys or something like that. Mm. Which is, again, that that's why the character is so confusing because that's how I interpreted that. And then he ends up not being that kind of character at all. So I like that idea that if it is all, if it's from her perspective, then why would she have them all together if she's going to end up dying in the end? Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. But I also thought that that was just put into make the fawn more interesting, not really to tell a story in and of itself. Yeah. Which is, it still feels like it's in the service of nothing then. Exactly. Which is what I think a lot of this movie is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Essentially. So, um, so it, it fits perfectly into this film. <laughs> uh, and then one of the other things I think that you can suggest it as being real, it could just be a child making the connection. It's just a coincidence, but when the mandrake gets burned on the fire and suddenly Carmen starts having those really nasty contractions, you can say like, oh, the remedy uh, isn't working anymore. And that's why. But I, you could also just say it was just the stress of the situation of the captain being mad at her and uh, seeing her child in distress. And so that's why her contractions are happening. But she, but Ophelia sees it as they're happening because the mandrake is getting burned. So that's that, I agree with you. That's a scene that could easily be taken as being real or not, as being magical or not. I, I totally agree with you with that because, like you said, Ophelia will look at it being like, "Oh, you burned the mandrake. That's why you're going into contractions right now." Uh, someone like an adult who doesn't believe in magic looking at that would be like, uh, "Like you said, the stress of the situation." So that is, again, that's why I think that this movie is fun in that way because mm-hmm. you can, you could totally look at that at, the, at it that way. Which is why I think it's odd that Guillermo del Toro came out and said that it, it's all. It is a fairy tale. It's so strange it's so, for a filmmaker yeah. to do that in the first place. Most of them won't even give uh, a hint at that because they, it's it kind of cheapens your work because then everyone knows what you were aiming for. I, mean, I don't think it cheapens your work, but it's just like 
here's the standard that I'm holding myself to. And it kind of, it doesn't work for me then, because if that's what you were trying to do, you did not achieve that because I don't think that, I think that almost all of these can be explained away. So again, like your, your, your themes don't match up and your real world of magic doesn't make sense. So I don't think this movie is very good because it didn't achieve what it set out to do. Yeah. If that was his goal is to be like, everything's magic, then yeah, it's, it, it missed the mark on that. I think it's better to leave it ambiguous because I, because while I said I do think it is all magic, and I, I just like the idea of it all being magic. It's fun in that way. I also totally find everything that you're saying to be a totally uh, acceptable reasoning for things to not be real. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that too. It just depends on what take do you want to have, what makes this movie more fun or more enjoyable for you, and the fact I, it is, it is a bummer when a director comes out and is like, no, it is this way. That's it. Because then it does. It kind of gets rid of like the fun theories that you can have about a movie when someone just tells you like, no. I, I I made it. I'm in charge of it. This is what I say. But in the end, it doesn't matter. We still get to make this podcast and we get to have our own opinion anyway. So Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's funny that you say that. And like, I feel like uh, when someone makes a really intelligent work of art, like Ari Aster making Hereditary, then coming out and saying that all of the weird things happening were the coven all suddenly that movie is way, way better because like, wow, okay, I thought a lot of that stuff was just people being crazy or like weird representational things. This put it, puts it in a completely different perspective and suddenly it's, it's a much more interesting work, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting how that works. How sometimes a director can come out and like put his foot down on something and you're like, oh, boo. And then sometimes the director will come on and you're like, oh my God, that makes this movie so much better. But I think that's like the difference being there like, that was not the point of his film. The point of Hereditary is uh, the family drama and everything else. Like wh- wh- whatever, whoever was the real actor uh, behind all of the bad stuff happening to the family, like whether it was just the coven, whether it was just spiritual, whether it was all, whether, it doesn't matter what those things are because you can still see, you will still receive the film the same way. You're right. That is, I was trying to come up with my head. What's, why are they different? Why do they feel different to get that kind of staple from the director on what's, real and what's not why do they feel different and that's exactly it that's a really good point yeah and i think so that's why you're on the podcast calvin yeah right (laughs) but i think i think the way we wrap up this film is then what the ending means to you and how you interpret the ending yeah why don't you go first so i guess i kind of want to start out does ophelia die or not so my thought is that she does die and i i really i i like the scene a lot where she's laying on the ground and mercedes has come to kind of comfort her and you see like that really nice warm like orange light come in and kind of envelop her and then it moves into like that uh that courtroom with the thrones like i had mentioned uh in part one with you know the the lovely costumes and everything i just love all that um i think that just kind of her finally moving on to the she's she's not imagining this fairy tale anymore she's going to move on to like her heaven and if the movie is from her perspective and it is magic, it would make sense that she would move on to the underworld like she's supposed to. And she'll have her life there with her mother and her padre and everything. And and it makes sense to me for the story to end that way. It is much less fun and much more depressing if she is, uh, if none of the magic is real in that moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that's the way it is. Um, and the reason I think that is because why would Carmen be her mother in the underworld? There's no reason for her spirit to be reincarnated in this Ophelia character and have the same mother. Like, that that mother never left the underworld. So she already exists as a different form in the underworld. So why it would be uh, a Carmen sitting on the throne would only be that way if Ophelia is finishing the, her, her fairy tale. And this is how uh, like her subconscious, her, her, she doesn't have any guilt because she didn't give her brother to the fawn which is weird because Vidal still takes it. But um, but the baby is also in the underworld. Yeah, uh, Carmen is holding a, a little baby. It, it's like really shrouded in all that uh, that that lovely red velvet. But yeah, she's, she's holding a baby, which I guess makes the ending make less sense because the baby doesn't go with her to the underworld. Yeah, yeah. I was, man, I didn't even see the baby. But yeah, like exactly. Like if it's all in her head, like she is projecting her real life onto these characters in the underworld, who never left. They wouldn't be. Re- they wouldn't look like the ones that we are familiar with. I don't think Guillermo del Toro knows that she. The magic isn't real. I think he made a movie where the magic isn't real, and he forgot. 
because now now I'm changing my mind because now that makes less sense to me. She's seeing her father, who we've never seen on screen before. Mm-hmm. So I agree that he could look like anything, and, yeah. and that would make sense. But, of course, she would see her earthly mother. That's who she would project in, in this courtroom. And then she would project seeing her brother. Yeah, because why would the why would, would the underworld mother have a baby at the exact same yeah. stage of life at the exact same time? Like that that ending would lend itself more to it being her imagination kind of at the end of her life. Like, yeah, okay, I've changed my mind completely. I don't think the magic's real. Because <laughs> I like the idea now of in her last moments, the thing she imagines is everything being perfect and her fairy tale working out. Yeah, that's that's, that's the way, yeah. and that's the way I think it is, and that's why that's why I think that this movie, is, the magic of it, is fairy tales as escapism, as 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 a way of of uh, taking all of the the nasty stuff in your real life, putting them into stories, and like again, like why I think that films are. Um, empathy games or empathy thought experiments because once you see once you put them into the the framework of a story you can work through what it means to actually live it and that's what's happening here it just sucks that you know it's sad at the end like she ends up dying because this is the way she wishes her life had turned out but it didn't because of this terrible awful man you got to watch this with someone who's never seen it before i watched it with hannah and uh, just seeing her face during like the bottle smashing scene, and then uh, and then during Ophelia's death, she was not expecting at all for Vidal to pull out the pistol and and smoke Ophelia like that. <laughs> so, I, I I turned and looked at her; her mouth was open, her eyes were wide. I was like, "Yeah, it's that kind of movie." Yeah, uh, yeah. And it, it, this movie is so tragic and everything, and and that's why that's why I like the idea of just having like the rebel kind of battles going on outside as a backdrop already lends to the tragic nature and then the fact that all these fairy tales are told in a really dark way really builds on that and that's why now i've changed my mind to thinking that her last moments are spent escaping this like dark tragic world she's in with mm-hmm. a nice fairy tale ending mm-hmm. yeah, i like that idea much better and that's it's, it's unfortunately the way that works best like i like that might be a little bit of like a like circle jerk pat myself on the back but i feel like that's all the movie gives us no, no, I, I think you are right because you changed my mind. And, you know, I, I like I like to have my own theories and get, I'm not going to say like set in my ways or anything, but I, I like to take my interpretation and, and bring that to this podcast. And so if if you're like, if you've brought up enough good points that make sense to me, then yeah, of course, I, I think that the, the way you've plotted it out narratively makes more sense, I think. Hmm. There is still a couple of those like little po- like points, like how did she get out of the room? Yeah, but you can explain that away with sneaking or something. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You really, I mean, you really can. Like she snuck out outside of a window. Like there are windows and things, you know, like maybe there's creaky. Like also if you think of like her getting into the pale man's area, like if that wasn't really a story, but maybe she's crawling around in some crawl space that's like, cause it's a really old house, you know? And maybe she's figured out some way to, to get through the house. It makes as it really makes as much sense as everything else that he's given us. Yeah, so Guillermo del Toro, email us at, uh, uh, now this is podcasting100 at gmail.com or comment on our, uh, when we upload this on YouTube and let us know uh, if you can rebuttal any of this stuff and uh, and, and then we'll we'll change our stance. But yeah, I think the way I stand now is, I, I do, I like the idea of it being a fairy tale in her own head. Mm-hmm. I think that that works out really well. Yeah. So do you have uh, final thoughts on this one? I think this movie is so close to being uh, transcendent. Because we re- we rarely get real life brutal fairy tales, um, but these are the every the the characters that are either too flat, um, or they're too nuanced, or they're not connected, um, and even if all of those things are like you know even if you fixed all of those things, this this film would only be really would be good. Like it's not going to be great for me ever because. Um, Del Toro just doesn't have a a good sense of camera work around him, so it's it's not that great for me. Like I I remember watching this and like wow this is amazing, and then I saw Shape of Water when that came out and I was like wow this is not really that this is no Pan's Labyrinth that's for sure. <laughs> and then I went back and watched Pan's Labyrinth and was like oh shit it's the exact same yeah like it's the exact same because there is a completely different uh, plot line with that Cold War espionage. Um, which, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Connor. You haven't seen that yet. It's the exact same Spoiler, movie. man. Yeah, it's the exact same movie. Like, we okay. completely distract from what, what yeah. the heart of the movie is, and we don't spend enough time cultivating the heart of that movie for it to actually matter. 
in the end. I think one thing you can definitely do is watch Kronos and then be like, that's no Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> so that's Yeah, it's like each movie you go back like, well, that's no. <laughs> yeah. uh, my, my thought is like, yeah, I think I'm right there. This is almost really, really good. Like there's all the contemporary articles and reviews that are just raving about this movie. And, and I like, don't get me wrong. I totally get that. Like, like I, I think I mentioned in part one that I had no problem going back and reviewing this. Like I, I like this movie. It is different to go at it with like a more critical lens and kind of then pick out all the stuff where I think there's one really interesting plot in this movie. And then it feels like they accidentally edited in a second movie into this mm-hmm. and that it just doesn't work together. Then again, it I, I love the prosthetics. I love the, characters that are brought to life by uh, uh doug jones mm. uh, i uh the, the fawn is 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 just one of like i think the most uh neat character designs and for me all the fantasy elements that are built up around him and ophelia i i those, like really saved the movie i love every interaction between ophelia and the fawn they're all fantastic i love his kind of sway between i i, I like his character he's more interesting because he's confusing in his motive mm. and the fact that he ends up being kind of servant of the king who was always kind of carrying out that will anyways, in a way kind of ruins that character for me because I thought he was more interesting until he turned out to just be literally a good guy the whole time. Mm-hmm. I like his character a little more if he is kind of nefarious in some ways. So I, I kind of lost a little from him, but even still, I love all that stuff. I, I, I love all the practical effects. I love uh, going through and finding out all the cool behind the scenes stuff that went into this movie. So in the end, I, I still like it. But I realize now, narratively, there are many more problems with this than I initially realized. But in the end, uh, this is still an enjoyable movie to me. I, I think it's so fun uh, in a really kind of dark way. Yeah. Uh, I know that's like weird to say, but I, I find this movie interesting and I like watching it. And I, I really like talking about it. This is a good one to pick, especially to stretch out. And I wouldn't even say stretch out, to make a two-parter because there is a there's a good bit uh, to mine out of this, I think. Yeah, especially when it's something like like we mentioned in part one that on Metacritic it has a 98, and I just can't, I, I flat can't understand that. It does not, it does not meet any of the criteria of a good story, whether or not like you even care about the language of film. So I think there is when when a movie is when we feel so differently about a movie, um, it's good for to, there to be a two parter. But then there's also like movies that everybody you know are universally loved. Um, you know, like Hereditary gets rave reviews and we were like, oh yeah, we love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> how many, uh, how many Mandrake roots do you give this one? Oh, I was going to give it Dirty Monkey Fairies. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, it's honestly, it's just, it's not, it's not very good. It misses a lot of things. It needs a lot of work. It doesn't know what it is. It's honestly, I'm only going to give it a 5.8. There's, there's a lot of great creature design. There's a lot of, you can see so much heart and, and vision. You can, and you can really see like that Del Toro is a visionary, absolutely a visionary. He's just in the wrong medium. Right. So it's a 5.8. I have all the exact same praises that you have. Um, I think the one thing is I am able to look past the shortcomings Mm. of it. Um, And that's why I, 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 I put this at like a seven. I just like watching this so much. Um, but yeah, with that, we'll, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, you can reach us at uh, nowthisispodcasting100 at gmail.com. We also upload all these to YouTube, and you can uh, catch us in the uh, comment section down there. Let us know we did well. Let us know we're doing wrong. And if you have any suggestions for other films we should watch, uh, this is also uploaded to any platform that you could uh, think of for your for podcasts like uh, Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts. And yeah, with that, uh, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.